right. Welcome to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is your host, Jamal Dajani. My co-host, uh, Jess Ghanem, is out of town. And we're going to have a great show for you today. We have in the house right here for the second time, I think, uh, Maad Abu Ghazali. And uh, Maad uh, is actually, I go, you and I go back for a long time now. I was like thinking, thinking about it, and it, it has been more than 20 years, Mad. Yeah, time flies. So, uh, Mad is, uh, back here, you know, from, from Palestine, from Asira, which is, uh, east, east of Nablus. Yeah. So, uh, I just want to give some, a little bit of background because you have a very complex background, really, Mad. People don't know. I mean, um, I put the title of the show, Daily Hugs, right? So I'll start a little bit with this, Daily Hugs. Do we need one? Yeah. And uh, when we talk about, yeah, when we talk about Daily Hugs, people think, well, what is Daily Hugs? Mm -hmm. Well, it was um, an idea I came up with around 2013. Uh, and I went back to Palestine after being away for decades. And um, I just looked around and wanted to see you know, what I could do to help the people um, in the resistance to the occupation. And, um, you know, the obvious things, you know, people say just give money, donate to the poor, whatever. I, you know, I wanted to do something more active than just passively giving money. Um, and so I, th I think what, what I thought needed the most attention was the um, people's morale and mentality that the occupation had... Um, inflicted so much damage on the people's psyche on their psychology that I you know just as if you know somebody gets shot they need therapy physical therapy you know in this case these were emotional wounds that people had to heal from so you know I decided to create a sanctuary uh, in the middle of the West Bank where you know people could see a you know, more peaceful existence to give people hope that you know there is a better way to live than the way you're living now because, you know, living in under military occupations really like being in a big prison. So you can get frustrated and lose hope, but, you know, I wanted to give people, remind people, you know, that there's something in life that's really worth living for. So I created the sanctuary, rescue animals, teach people how to care for animals. Um, and, and, you know, one more thing about it is I also wanted to show a counter-argument to the argument the Israelis are making, which is, um, you know, the strong eats the weak. That's the argument people see played out every day. That's right. Uh, you know, the guy with the, sold with the gun, the soldier with the gun, gets to call the shots. And that, that's the mentality people were living under. I wanted to show them, you know, there is another way, which is if you have power, you have a responsibility to share and, and take care of the people that don't have power. So, you know, that's what the big part of Daily Hugs, the sanctuary, is, is we get the weakest elements in society and we, we care for them. We, we share hugs with them. I want to go back. I mean, I'll, I'll, we'll come, go back to Daily Hugs because I want to get more details because since we saw you last time, I mean, things have never been good. No, it's I mean, dramatic. It's for, for, always for, changing. For Palestinians, you know. Yeah. Seven decades, they, they've been struggling, and people are full of hope, but it seems like every time we meet, I mean, here we go from the mm -hmm. last time we met, then you probably were back here, and everybody was waiting for that deal of the century. Yeah. And then now we know what's in that deal of the century. Mm -hmm. How do you, what do you think, what kind of impact is this going to leave on, on the little hope that some people have? Uh, back there, the lives of the children, families who are going to be living in Bento stands, really. I mean, when you talk to me, you know, where, where you're at, you're, it's going to be, Asira is going to be part of the larger Nablus Bento stand, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it, you, you always think you've hit bottom, and then it gets worse. And we, it is pretty low. Um, nobody, to be honest, nobody really had high expectations about the um, Trump deal. Uh, but it was probably as worse, as bad as anybody could have imagined. And yeah, it's just this constant, um, you know, tweaking these nerves of making things more and more difficult and frustrating. 
um, which is why you know the the uh, the people say you know existence is resistance is we have to survive and and in Palestine, existence is an active word, because if you if you're if you don't do anything you'll cease to exist. The the Zionists are trying to eliminate the Palestinian identity, so if you do nothing to fight back to just um, exert your own identity, actively exert your identity. You know, their argument that there's no such thing as a Palestinian will be the only argument heard. And then, you know, the next thing that's going to happen, as you saw in the Trump deal, which I assume is going to be, we're going to talk about later, is mm -hmm. they'll say there's no such thing as Palestinians. These are just individuals, nomads from other Arab countries. Each nomad takes some money and, and get out of our land, which should be exclusively Jewish. So, so um, to answer your question, I think that the, the response that, that um, we're seeing is I, I think they've reached a peak in terms of frustration. And so now they're just using the Palestinian word sabr. They're, they're being patient. They're actively existing and resisting through their existence. And um, I don't see that. I, I mean, I've talked to people since the Trump deal, and nobody is considering this, this nonsense about them taking money and leaving. It's not even on the table in the Palestinians. Like even somebody who barely has food to eat would not consider taking a dime to leave their land. I mean, you're back in the States. Uh, again, uh, my guest for the full hour is uh, Maad Abu Ghazali. Maad and I go back for 20 years or so. And um, you're back. You're living in Palestine. You come back from time to time to visit the States. And you're now like, it's just it's you're taking him back in time because when we first met or shortly after we met you ran for congress mm -hmm. right here and now i reinvented myself and now we have we have elections you're in the midst yeah. of elections you're actually you also witnessed within uh, the past couple of years uh, Palestinian-American elected uh, to congress Rashida Tlaib mm -hmm. you have uh, the first Muslim-American hijabi woman from Somalia yeah. also got elected and I think there are at least two additional candidates running for elections, Palestinians mm -hmm. uh, you have uh, Rush Darwish in Chicago and uh, you have in Southern California also another candidate running uh, this has changed because when you first ran it was a novelty Yeah, um, I think there's been a huge change in the landscape since I ran, um, just look at the Palestinian issue. Uh, back then, you know, there was there was no real talk about the Palestinians. Um, when the first, uh, not the first Gaza war, but not the recent one, the one before it happened, more people were killed, and it didn't even make the news. And the more recent one, when they did the bombings, uh, was it 2014? And in Gaza, 16. 16? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was all over the papers. Um, people were naive. You know, they still thought, well, this is clearly wrong. We can change things overnight, not realizing there's this huge Israeli lobby preventing any change. But, yeah, there's been a big shift in the landscape, political landscape. But I still think there's a lot of grassroots that needs to be done because at the, you know, at the top levels, how much has really changed? The, the aid to Israel is the same as it's ever been. You're seeing this anti-BDS um, uh, laws being passed. Uh, so, you know, the political power is shifting. We, we have momentum, but we, we have a long, long way to go. Yeah, I mean, there are, though, a lot of similarities, even though things have gotten worse. And I'm just taking you back 18 years ago, because when you ran, that was during the Bush administration and was shortly right, af right after 9-11 mm -hmm. uh, with the you know, Islamophobia pretty much yeah. peaking, peaking in this country, anti-Arab sentiment and so forth. Trump is reviving this, mm -hmm. you know. It's like almost every day or so there's the Muslim ban, yeah. uh, you know, anti-immigrant uh, sentiment is growing, the rise of white supremacy. You know, you'll think like 20 years and then people were hopeful during the Obama administration that, oh, you know, we've elected the first uh, black president in this country. And now, now things have gone like south, way yeah. south. Mm -hmm. And things could be getting worse. I mean, I think this is um, what I was telling you earlier was I think what, what you're seeing is reactions. 
right? So you're saying, you know, um, there was this big, first there was 9-11, and this, this immediate reaction to 9-11 was um, anti-Muslim sentiment, um, exclusivity, that it's a white nation, white Christian nation. Um, and then we had this opening up to, um, you know, a more, uh, let's say, open society with uh, different cultures. And then a reaction to that was Trump. And I, I think what you're seeing is that uh, when people form tribes and groups, they, they stick to those um, identities much tighter when they feel threatened. So what you see is an escalation, right? So And we're seeing this happen. We're seeing, um, you, know, um, you know, the Trump side escalating things. So the anti-Trump side feels threatened. Now they have to escalate things. And, and the, the rhetoric is getting, you know, more and more um, uh, antagonistic. Uh, and you know the same thing is happening in the Palestinian in the Palestinian area where you have you know the Israelis are now the the Jews in Israel feel they're being threatened, so now they're a tight tribe and they have to consolidate their power, and you know they they have nuclear weapons and they're fighting kids in the street with rocks, but somehow they've been able to be manipulated into thinking that they're under existential threat. Well, explain that mentality. I mean, you've said it. Mm -hmm. Israel is one of the strongest military in the world. Mm -hmm. They have nuclear weapons. They have the full support of the United States, which is the only superpower now in the world. And then yet they feel threatened by kids. I just mm -hmm. watched the other day a, a kid, 13-year-old boy in Hebron, uh, getting arrested with his mother trying to hug him, and they're just yanking him, throwing him into the back of a, a jeep. So what what is that threat? Well, it's it's how it's they've been um, brainwashed um, by not seeing any Palestinians. I mean, this is part of the whole apartheid system: is they don't see any Palestinians except when they're perceived as being doing something violent or terrorist. Um, so, uh, an example of how they do this: there's um, since you've traveled to Palestine a lot, you've seen these big red signs, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as you cross out of Israel, 48 Israel, into the Palestinian area, um, the West Bank and Gaza, there's this huge red sign in bright red that says um, it's illegal for you to go into the Palestinian area. Um, this is dangerous for your life. They, they just try to threaten you as much as possible in order to keep people separate, in order for them to be able to manipulate the, the, the minds of the people inside of 48 um, Palestine into thinking that the only Palestinians, that all Palestinians are, are terrorists, and since you're not being presented any other Palestinian, you know, just they beat you down. You start to think, well, that must be the case, because that's the only Palestinians I see are these um, people on TV causing problems. Um, uh, can I just give you an example, Jamad? Is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, we're just talking about my sanctuary. So, um, uh, you know, one thing I thought, you know, the way to counterbalance this thing that I'm talking about, about the tribes um, uh, just escalating their, their fear of each other, uh, is to find a unity, commonality between mm -hmm. the people. Right. And to be honest, that's one of the reasons I got out of politics, is I, I felt that the, um, there wasn't enough work being done on the grassroots level that, you know, change really does have to come from the grassroots, and the grassroots wasn't ready. They weren't ready to see each other as being common. Mm -hmm. So that's that's why I started this Daily Hugs organization. But anyway, so I, I, um, was in, I, was, I had animals to rescue. The, the um, veterinary uh, care inside of the West Bank is not very good. So there's a, a vet inside of Tel Aviv that said, hey, um, why don't you, um, you know, if you have any situations, I'll, uh, you know, why don't you bring uh, your animals here and I can help you take care of them. I, I thought that was, you know, there's an area of commonality. We, you know, we have a, a, a love for other living beings. Um, so I took her up on it. Um, and so when I, I, I had a dog that had been um, that had been hit by a car, I took the dog over to her in Tel Aviv and... Um, Somehow we got, it was during the Netanyahu um, election, um, and uh, the elections in, um, for prime minister in Israel. And, um, and somehow I let it slip out <laughs> that um, I wasn't supportive of Netanyahu, and she got really upset. And, um, and she says, you know, he, to me, he's a hero. Wow. And he's a hero. She said, um, he, he's protecting us from the biggest threat we have. And she said, and I said, what's that? She said, it's Islam. Islam is the biggest threat. 
and he's protecting us. And this is a person who's a vet who cares for sick animals. Educated. Yeah, you'd think this person is a compassionate person, and, right. and they probably are in all respects, but it just shows you the power of, of media, of indoctrination, of how it can take what would naturally be a person who would empathize with others. But because of this indoctrination, the other is perceived as being this evil. And, and it's pervasive throughout society. And Tel Aviv is viewed as a liberal city. That's mm -hmm. why uh, many of the liberals who live in, for example, Jerusalem, they move to Tel Aviv. And so we're not talking about the settlers. No, right, right. So this is, in a way, when you are in, in, uh, in the West Bank, the only interaction that you have with Israelis, if any, would be with the soldiers at the checkpoints mm -hmm. who are the occupiers and then also the colonial settlers. It's intentional. It's intentional that they keep everybody divided so that you don't find commonality. Um, yeah, I'll give you another story. If you, you want stories yeah, about yeah, what's going yeah, on. We have the full hour. All right. So um, so I had been doing well. You're, you're saying how I, um, uh, I live now in Palestine or the West Bank. <clears throat> so I've been doing well by staying out of politics because I had this vision that I wanted to create the sanctuary, that was, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that people can look up to as, as being a model for how we treat other living things in the future, uh, how we treat each other in the future. And that was going along fine until about a year and a half ago. Uh, so I have a, a U.S. passport. I don't have um, residence. Uh, Jamal, do you have residence there? Well, it's different for people in, in you know, Jerusalem have uh, uh, Jerusalem ID and the West Bank, they they have Palestinian passports. That's their uh, yeah. I didn't I didn't have one. My yeah. my family happened to be living in Saudi Arabia in 1967 when Israel took it over, so we were left out. So we you're, had, you're, we had nothing. you're basically a U.S. citizen. That's how that's you, all I have. That's how you're staying. There. Yes, um, as a visitor. Yeah. Right. So um, so I, I, I so I would come and go maybe three four times a year. They give me a three month visa. You know, they harass me at the border, but they harass all Palestinians at the border. It was I didn't find it exceptional nor, nor too worrisome. Except there's one time I had this um, another, uh, there's two animal sanctuaries that I'm aware of in the West Bank. One of them is um, run by a woman named Diana Butu in, in Bethlehem. So me and her were going to go together. I was going to drive her because I have... Um, Not the Diana Butu. From Babish, sorry. Yeah, I love Diana because Diana would Babish. I know. Yeah, Babish. <laughs> she yeah. likes animals, doesn't she? I know she likes, but All right, I know. Good. Yeah. No, Babish. Yeah, Babish. A different person. <laughs> yes, also my friend, but yeah. th this was uh, another one, Diana Babish. Um, anyway, so she, um, so me and her were going to go to a village called Janine because we were going to talk to them about how to do a stay and neuter program. Right. So I was driving her from Bethlehem to Janine, and we got on ways, and somehow we got distracted, and we ended up at the Israeli border. Uh, they stopped us, uh, they pulled us over, they gave us inspection. It turns out she didn't have papers to go inside. And they let her slide, but I was the one who got in trouble because it looked like I was smuggling her in. And the last thing they want is a Palestinian to go into the side of 48 Palestine. They, they, that's taboo for them. So mm -hmm. they thought I was smuggling her in, and, and that must have put, they must have put it in my, my record. Because from that point on, any interaction I had with Israel ended up very negatively. Uh, the next time I interacted with them was I was crossing over from Jordan. Uh, they, this for the first time, they, they, um, you know, just to give you my background, I, I'm, I was born in Nablus in the West Bank. My, both my parents were born there, and their parents were all born there. My mother's side. Um, they go back a thousand years. They can. Well, we know when when you say that immediately for me, I know that you're from Nablus. Yeah, and there's Tamim Dayer. I don't know if you know that. That's yeah. a name from, you know, from thousands of years ago. Yeah. Those, are, those are my family. So we go way back. So I'm crossing the border, uh, and this, the the border guard, who who was um, had a very strong Russian accent, appeared to have just arrived there. Um, we looked at my, my visa, and she was saying, you know, uh, my passport, and she was saying, you know, I think you're visiting here too much. So mm -hmm. even though I have thousands of years of history there. And you were born there. I was born there. An immigrant that came maybe five years ago from Russia is telling me I'm visiting her country too much. So she said, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you in, thank you, but I'm only going to give you one month visa and instead of three. And... Um, you shouldn't come this often. 
You shouldn't come this much. So that was that reaction. Um, then the next time I interacted with them, I had another car that got another uh, dog that got hit by a car. I was taken to a different vet in Tel Aviv, and so I um, I got stopped at the border. Only Palestine. So this this border from the West Bank into 48 Palestine, uh, which is where Tel Aviv is. People call it Israel proper. Um, that's basically just to prevent Palestinians from entering. So if you appear, physical appearance, if you appear Jewish, if you appear like you're a settler, you get through that border by simply waving your hand. Mm -hmm. Going out, they'll let anybody leave. But they just, the last thing they want is Palestinians entering, ethnically Palestinians. So I, I'm, so I get harassed every time. I was ready for it. This, this, the soldier stops me. Um, and uh, and he, he, he inspects the car. They always give me special inspection. And they see the dog, and they say, you know, is this your dog? I say, no, I, I just found him in the street. I have a sanctuary. I, I'm just um, taking him inside to Tel Aviv to get veterinary care, um, and I'll be out in a few hours. We're, we're, here's the name of the vet. Here's the clinic. And they say, um, I said, where, where did you find this dog? I said, in, in Nablus. And, and so he said, he's in, so the soldier said, so he's an Arab dog? I said, yeah, we found him in Nablus. He said, uh, he looks dirty. He probably has diseases. Go back. You can't bring him. Can you imagine? So, um, I mean, you're bringing him to treat him. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm actually curious because I, what's the deal with the, I mean, the vets in, in Tel Aviv? Mm. Are, don't we have any Palestinian vets nearby or is that... Uh, they're Palestinians, trying to work kind of like uh, maybe pro bono or something? Um, yeah, there, there's not many Palestinian vets that work on domesticated animals like um, dogs and cats. Uh, they're, they're animals that the vets there work on sheep and cows and um, donkeys, just animals that are used for labor or mm -hmm. things like that. So if you have a small animal, there's really nobody there. That's the reason, yeah, that's a good question, is why am I having to constantly go to Tel Aviv? There's a law that prevents, and this goes again to the indoctrination, there's a law that prevents an Israeli veterinarian from treating any animal out inside of the West Bank. And if you get caught, you will lose your license. And I've asked many vets to please come help us. Mm -hmm. And they, and many vets said, I really, really honestly want to help you, but I don't want to lose my license. So now I'm obligated to go to them, and only I can do it. The other Palestinians can't because I'm a U.S. citizen. I can cross this border. Uh, but uh, let me just finish this story. So um, after this soldier sent me back telling me I have a dirty Arab dog, um, I called the clinic. They sent a volunteer to the border who was Jewish mm -hmm. and who claimed that this was his dog. So now this was a Jewish dog, and he went straight in. <laughs> Just uh, no questions asked. He went straight in. The dog got, got so treated. So racism really... Because it's all pervasive. It's everything. <laughs> yeah. So racism does not only apply to people, but also yeah. to dogs. I mean... It is. It's is, tainted. They're this tainted. This is insane. Talking about the borders, because this is something also now with the deal of the century. And, uh, you know, for now... Many years, Palestinians have been complaining about the that ugly apartheid wall, but apparently, mm -hmm. which basically did not follow also the yeah. 1967 borders, mm -hmm. and now it seems that they've been planning all along to make it basically a border. Mm -hmm. I, I was looking at the, I don't know if you read the whole. Uh, I didn't go deal. through it all. Mm -hmm. I went through it all, but for example, Kalandia, mm -hmm. which they also they call Atarot, yeah, they are converting it into this big tourist center, like mm. a huge border selling, of course, Israeli goods and tax-free and whatever. That's that's according to them. So that's going to be the main entry, one of the main entry mm -hmm. points to the, to the West Bank. But then, uh, then they're going to have different gates, like add gates to, to that wall. So, and, so in fact, that becomes the de facto border to those uh, but but apartheid is, is going to be more entrenched than ever. I mean, there's going to be a very distinct separation between the Palestinians and the Israelis. I mean, the streets are different. There's there's no opportunity to interact with each other. Yeah, it is apartheid. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are using it. I mean, are people realizing now in the West Bank that this is the status quo versus just it's an occupation? There, um, the, the uh, way I can see it, 
present itself is that, that more and more people are starting to open their minds up to having a one-state solution, which is, um, yeah, there's the, the, the settlers are everywhere. There's, what, 700,000 settlers now. The, uh, um, you know, and the thing about the settlements, people say, well, that's so intractable. Um, and honestly, isn't that intractable? I mean, maybe I'm being naive about it, but I, I don't think what irks people about the settlements is that they've taken so much land, which they have. It's the fear that they're just keep growing and encroaching. I mean, the Palestinians have some land right now, and they have. And the worst part about these settlements is that they're controlled um, by the the, the um, laws and everything are controlled by the Israeli military, which means these settlers have complete impunity to do to actually commit murder. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's well known. That's the that's where the real conflict comes from. It's it's yes, it's the fact they've taken so much Palestinian land. But it's more than that. It's the fact that they're controlling the West Bank with the military, and they keep expanding. They keep taking more and more land. That's what's really bothering people. Yeah, but now the next step is uh, uh, total annexation. Yeah, they're taking. Well, they this so the annexation, which means that for they'll be part of uh, Israel. So so they'll be mm -hmm. separately. So you you know that's kind of. Like but they don't. They're not taking the people. They're taking the land. Well, not only this, but it's even worse because another uh, component to this agreement, for example, in the Galilee, which is uh, Muthalath, we call it, they are proposing transferring 11 uh, villages and townships mm -hmm. to the future Palestinian state. Well, Jamal, there's with, a the, with, the, with, the, with the caveat that there. Actually, these these village these are um, people who who, ha who are Israeli citizens uh, since 1948. So they want to transfer them, which means they want to get rid of about quart a quarter of a million Palestinians. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's important to point out that right if from the outside you look at it. Well, uh, these are Palestinians; they get to live in a Palestinian state. Why are they upset? You know, maybe it's true what the Israels are saying is that they're such this beacon of, of um, you know, freedom and whatever. You have to understand that there is no Palestinian state. There's a Palestinian prison. That's right. So when you're saying you're transferring people out of this free society because it's not a prison into the Palestinian prison, you're putting them in jail, you know, where there's no opportunities. They, they, you're, you're, um, part of this plan was that the entire Palestinian territories are, are surrounded by Israel. They have no borders to the outside world. So if you're going to try to do any business, if you're trying to leave or, or come back or, or import or export, it's all controlled by Israel. So there's very little opportunity for a, a booming economy there. So you're telling these people you know, that, you, that you're just mentioning that they're being transferred into the Palestinian territories, territories that you're going to put them in jail. It's not that they're... Um, um, using jo joining a viable state. Basically. Yeah, it, it's it's not that they're, they're they love Israel so much they love the um, their system. It's that the fact that at least they're not in prison. That's what they're upset about. And yeah, and the other thing is um, somebody was telling me, oh, but look, the Palestinians get more land than they used to have. They get more land in the desert. They get the Gaza, Gaza gets expanded, so you get more land in the desert. The most fertile land in the West Bank, which is along the Jordan River, and water. And the water resources, 80% um, of which are already being taken by Israel, but now they'll have actual physical control of all the water. water. That gets annexed permanently um, by Israel. So let's look a little bit uh, to, uh, to the future. Um, assuming that this is, they're going to go through with everything that they have. It's a unilateral decision, or it's a, mm -hmm. it's a decision by the United States and Israel, Palestinians, Obviously, they have rejected it. But they're invisible, so who uh, cares? The, it was rejected at the Arab League. It was rejected at the Islamic uh, Conference. Uh, President Mahmoud Abbas came to the United Nations, spoke, complained. Mm -hmm. People listened. It wasn't an actionable item, meaning like there is no vote on it because as we know, the United States will veto anything mm -hmm. that's going to come out, any decision from the United Nations. So let's look, let's say, a year or two years ahead, and they start implementing this. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, the 
economy as bad as it is is going to be much worse. I mean, it's not just a prison, but now the prison walls are encroaching on the the people. They they didn't have control of any of their resources to begin with. Uh, it's it's they're in survival mode. They're in survival mode, and and you know I don't want to play the victim, but they, there's just not that much. As you mentioned, you know they can scream all they want. There, there's not much Palestinians can do at this point. So it's, um, you know, it's gonna it's gonna rely on. You know, I hate to say this, but people around the world have to support the Palestinians to create a change. And now I think it's it's on the table. You know, the the abuses of the Israelis is open for everybody to see. The humanitarian abuses, the, uh, the you know, the fact that they've created this prison with so many people. Um, you know, it's as long as America continues to support this dictate. It's not a peace proposal; it's a dictate. This is how it's going to be. Uh, there's very little the Palestinians can do, and and right now it's just, um, like I said, just be patient. The Palestinians need to um, uh, just uh, consolidate their own um, resources, and and that right now the the thing that's keeping the West Bank together is the families. They're they're tight families. There's not much money to go around, but they take care of each other, and that that's what it is for the time being until we see a change in direction from the U.S. Because, you know, if the U.S. says we're going to pursue this, you tell me, Jabal, what can the Palestinians do? Well, what's the role of the Palestinian Authority in all of this? I mean, I, um, they're the ones who pretty much led the negotiations since Oslo. Yeah. It's been uh, since 1991. And... They haven't met any of the people's expectations. Mm -hmm. They well, they've met Israel's expectations. They, they've, they they've done that on the security level, yeah. and now they're saying that they're going to be ending security cooperation. The Trump administration recently, I, ju I actually just read that two days ago in the New York Times, said that they're going to be because they they've cut off aid. About eight hundred million dollars worth of aid. That came the Trump did, not yeah. the Palestinians. I mean, it was it was. But, a, but they say, but they're saying now, and they left some aid for security, mm -hmm. yeah. and they said if this change, if they change, basically stop the coordination, that they will cut off aid altogether. So right now, the um, Palestinian Authority is perceived by the people as the Vichy government that their, their role is basically to implement Israeli policy. That's not a secret. You know, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. They, hopefully, this will lead them to try to uh, rid themselves of that, that, that label. Um, because, for example, when, you know, you, I'm sure you've heard that there's something like 300 children, uh, um, Palestinian children from the West Bank that are rotting in Israeli jails every year. How do they get these children? The, the Israeli military sends notice to the Palestinian Authority, who is in charge of security in, for example, in Nablus and other Palestinian cities. They say, hey, we're coming to kidnap a kid. Please get out of the way. And they do. They get out of the way, middle of the night, and you see Israeli tanks coming in, kidnapping a child. They leave, and then the Palestinian Authority comes back and controls the situation. How else can you look at that other than their Avishi government? That they're they're put in power by the enemy in order to create a layer uh, between the the Israelis and the Palestinian people. So maybe if this there'll, there'll be a point at which the Palestinian Authority says we're we're, we're through being their their lackey. Maybe this is it. I don't know. I mean, what you're saying. What, what do you think? Do you, see, do you think? Uh, I mean, there are also there have been some calls saying, well, maybe they should just pack their bags and go go home and dismantle. Mm -hmm. And and so what will happen uh, having, you know, this vacuum then? I don't see them leaving. Uh, they have so much power, so much money. What would it take? For, why would they go? I mean, they so, have... So this this is out of the question. You don't, I don't think... I don't see any movement in that direction. Yeah. The, I see the Palestinian Authority consolidating power, building bigger villas in, in Jericho. I don't see them uh, sharing power with anybody else. So you just maybe hoping that they will change their attitude? Is that it? Just become more nationalistic and stop? Uh, I don't want to hope. You know. I, I, I think you have to create change, and the change has to come. 
you know, these these are theories because nobody has answers there, right? right? right. So my theory is that. You know, the Palestinians have to get to the point where they acknowledge, accept the fact that they have been victimized, that there's not much in their power, and then get to the next level of saying, okay, I don't want to be identified as a victim. I want to be able to take as much control of my life as I can. And, and that's when change can happen. If, you, if we're expecting to go to the leadership and just change the leadership by giving them good philosophical arguments or moral arguments, you know, they're not going to give up a dime. But if the people start to um, recognize that they're not just victims, they've been victimized, but they have power, and start to mobilize and start to act as if their behavior can change the world, I think that's how you, you do it, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Uh, and so, you know, little things are important. You just have to empower the people because the, the frustration is, as with this mm-hmm. um, Trump dictate, uh, is to think that you everything is happening to you and you have no control of anything in your life. And it's just not true. There's you, you start with the little things. Start by cleaning the streets. Why are the streets dirty? Israel has nothing to do with that. But the Palestinians are just so frustrated with life, they just don't care. So they, they toss garbage out. You know, be be proud of your 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 environment. Be you know feel that you're a part of something bigger. You know I, I want the Palestinians to start to recognize that they are not just victims, but they're part of the human race. They're part of part of all living creatures in the world, and so that they don't start to feel that they're you know in a corner where there's nothing that they can do. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right because that's something that always irritated me traveling you know, to Jerusalem and the West Bank and, and, and wherever. And you, and you see, you know, especially, you know, in the midst of our beautiful country. Yeah, the rolling people, hills. People yeah. throwing trash, construction material. Mm-hmm. and that's, Because they've given up. That's something very frustrating. Mm-hmm. I'm going to switch gears maybe a little bit to a more positive outlook. Please. And, <laughs> and, and uh, let's talk Did about you need a hug, why, Jamal, yeah, why everyone needs a daily hug. Yeah. Let's talk about your, your project. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm so proud of you. You've, uh, how many years has it been now? I started in 2013, so seven years. It now. was just like an idea, mm-hmm. and now you actually have a sanctuary right there in Asira near Nablus. How many animals you kind of well, take care of? We started with one, a one-eyed donkey and um, a dog in mm-hmm. 2013, and now we have 30 dogs and 17 donkeys. But it's more than a sanctuary because also mm-hmm. it's a sanctuary for children. Yeah. Uh, that was the idea from the start is um, I wanted to do not just a shelter for animals, but I wanted to impact the society. So I, wanted, um, so I, I started bringing in children, uh, especially children with autism, other um, mental disorders, and um, um, and and it actually was good therapy for them, because yeah, there's as I was saying, they're in a prison, right? They're they're in constant pressure, uh, violence around them. They all know people who've been imprisoned or, or or injured, and so they need something like this. They need something to make them feel that life's worth living. You know that there are good things in life, and all they do is I bring them out. They um. This is this is how it happens most of the time. They come out. They're afraid of these animals. They they've been taught that dogs are dirty and um, and uh, that they're violent, um, and uh, so they're afraid of the dogs. But our dogs are just amazing dogs. Most of them. Some of them get scared and run away. And they we have areas for them when the the kids come. There's there's um, places where the dogs can go if they don't feel like interacting. But a lot of them just love kids, mm-hmm. especially the puppies. So they'll come running up to the kids. At first, the kids are afraid of them, and you know maybe uh, they might, from a distance, you know, touch one. But you know, I, I take them by the hand one by one, and I start having them interact intimately, like physically, with these with the animals, with the donkeys, giving a donkey a hug. Donkeys, believe it or not, love to be hugged. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, there, there, there's one called Helu who comes running after you and won't leave unless you give him a hug. <laughs> um, Right, and so it, it changes them. It, it changes this anxiety inside of them. And there's just something peaceful about connecting with other living beings. I mean, it's, it's really, it sounds like 
you know, that's why I said I don't want to just talk about about this just as a, um, you know, daily hugs as uh, just an animal sanctuary. You're really providing therapy. Mm-hmm. Really? For me, too, because I, mean, I, I get under stress, and when I'm out there... So um, what's the reaction of the parents? I mean, uh, I mean, the children, of course, it's easier to kind of win yeah. the hearts and minds of children, especially when it comes to animals. I know culturally, mm-hmm. you know, because when you talk about dogs, people, uh, Palestinians, they look at dogs as, as either a working dog, which is fine, for mm-hmm. shepherds or whatever, but not really like a pet. Yeah, that they're, they're, you, know, they're, you have to use them for something, or, or they're not guard dogs. Dismiss but, them. Yeah, it's not, guard dogs too. Yeah. So um, they don't, you know, the, the parents. It's hard to change their mentality. So first of all, when I started the sanctuary, they 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 made fun of it. It's like you know, with all these problems around, you're going to go help a donkey. You know, they they didn't understand it. Well, and, that's why I mean, this is something people will be. Uh, accusing you about priority they'll say mm-hmm. why don't you feed people why are yeah. you feeding feeding dogs and, and donkeys because we're all connected right it, it's not one or the other it's not like if i feed a donkey i'm hurting a palestinian i i think i'm helping people by like i said making these connections making them feel more open making them have hope that there's something in life that's worth living for mm-hmm. so i don't i don't prioritize either i help animals or i help Palestinians or I help somebody else it's like you know if you're in this world you know try to do good and and don't prioritize one life over another life you know it's all valuable uh, so for the parents it's hard to change that mentality that we're mm-hmm. talking about is that they dismiss them uh, as you know just being something there to be used uh, and until they see the children how much fun they have yeah you know fun that they aren't able to give uh, provide for their children. I mean, you know, they bring uh, dogs to hospitals. They mm-hmm. bring dogs to uh, children who are uh, physically challenged. Yeah, in this country. In this country, because they know the effect mm-hmm. and how it yeah. helps these people, how they help these people. There, there have been lots of studies about yes. that. But you, you have to overcome the fear. And so, like, I had this one dog that I needed to get x-rayed. Um, is, her, her name was Panda, um, like a beautiful husky dog. It was a husky, husky, husky mixed with a broken arm. Um, taking this dog through the town of Nablus, you know, very extremely friendly, well-behaved dog. As I was walking on the sidewalk, everybody was jumping to the other side of the, the road. <laughs> they were scared. They were petrified of this animal. Yeah. And again, it shows you what happens when you don't have interaction. When all you've seen is and heard is that dogs are, are rabid or whatever, um, you know. So you know that that's what I had to overcome is is this 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 fear of of these of uh, of these other beautiful creatures which the children don't have. They no, they, they start with it. That's the beauty about you know the innocence. It's easy to change. Yeah. Uh, how many acres do you have? It's one acre. It's one acre, and I know every time you come here. You bring us olive oil, yeah. and I want to show it here to our viewers on uh, Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. But it's really, I mean, delicious. Palestina olive oil, you you, mm-hmm. you called it. Is this, this is like one way to kind of support Lots of daily things. hugs. It's, yeah, well, and yeah, also, it's like, you're, uh, you're kind of, you know, living of the land almost, you know. In yeah, a way. I, I, that's the future I want to see of Palestine is... is um, more emphasis on you know this this um, traditional lifestyle. Uh, Palestinians are traditionally olive farmers. Uh, this their olives trees are thousands of years old from the Roman era. Uh, and yeah, so I I, um, I pick these olives. I have volunteers come from the U.S. that help pick the olives. We press them. Uh, olive, we send olive oil back to the U.S. and then I sell it in the U.S. for to support the sanctuary and. Last year, we, we, were, um, we were able to care for 30 dogs and 17 donkeys uh, through, you know, without additional uh, donations on my behalf. It's self-sustaining now through the sale of olive oil. And, and one thing, you're saying how uh, delicious it is, but mm-hmm. as a Palestinian, everybody's going to say, well, you're not very objective. So out of curiosity, uh, I sent a sample of this olive oil a couple of weeks ago. I'll show that again to some people are asking about it. Yeah, so I sent it to a laboratory uh, to be tested. 
uh, and um, the big thing now, the superfood now, is everybody's talking about the polyphenol content of foods, which is a, a strong antioxidant. And what makes the uh, Mediterranean diet so special is this olive oil with all these polyphenols in it. So good oil um, you, you find in the supermarket will have about 150 to 250 milligrams per kilogram mm -hmm. of polyphenols. You know, the Italian brands, which are considered the best, you know, may get a little bit under 300. So this, the results came back on this oil. It's uh, 519 milligrams per kilogram polyphenols, which means it's more than twice as much, twice as concentrated wow. as the uh, store-bought uh, olive oil. Wow, and, uh, and you can smell it and taste yeah, it. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's it's up there. It's really uh, delicious, and I think it's a great idea in a way. Well, it supports you know, the Palestinian how, tradition. How, you, you support the Palestinian tradition, but also you support the sanctuary. Yeah. So when people want to uh, help you or help the sanctuary, where should they go? They go to your website. Yeah, there's a website. Uh, if you just want to buy the oil, it's uh, palestinaoliveoil.com. Mm -hmm. uh, or you can look at um, our Facebook group, uh, which has lots of good pictures of donkeys. Um, we've had a couple of uh, baby donkeys that have come to the sanctuary recently. And some of our dogs, that's um, facebook.com slash groups slash daily hugs. Well, uh, how, how do you ship it here? I mean, people, you just come here when you, you bring a shipment here, or people... So I piggyback on, there's a village in Palestine called Turmasaya. Uh, you know, Turmasaya, a lot of them live in the United exactly. States. Exactly. So one, one guy from Turmasaya <laughs> came, came yeah. to America yeah. and said, it's a beautiful country, <laughs> brought all of his family and relatives, so the entire village emptied out into the U.S. Right. Uh, the ones that remain behind, it's all olive orchards there. Uh, most of Palestine is olive orchards. Uh, so the, the the relatives there pick their olives. They they um, send them oil back to the owners of the land. They still own their land in Turmasaya. I piggyback. They they rent out containers and ship them. I piggyback my olive oil on Turmasaya's oil, and it gets shipped here. They take care of the customs and everything, and then they deliver it. And then I bottle it here, and um, I go cross country. Last year I went. I drove the circumference of the United States, ten thousand miles. Wow. Uh, selling or distributing the olive oil. Wow. And talking about hugs. You talked about, you talked earlier about uh, volunteers coming for the harvest, mm -hmm. and also volunteers coming to help taking care of the animals. Is yeah, that, they do. Yeah. I mean, you people come from the. I mean, how? how well, as, since the Israelis don't let me go there permanently or stay as much as I'd like, we need people to be there to to care for the animals. Um, because yeah, uh, the the local people, like as we were mentioning, don't have much knowledge or history interacting with dogs and donkeys in the way that we'd like them to. So, we'd love to have volunteers over. There's a cabin there they can stay at, and the main thing you want for them is just to care and love the. the what animals. about the veterinarians? Because it seems to be this kind of is troubling mm -hmm. with this whole idea that when you need a vet, that you yeah. have to go all the way to Tel Aviv. And get stopped at the border. And get stopped at the border. I mean, mm -hmm. have you kind of tried to approach, I mean, is there something like, you know, how Doctors Without Borders is there? There's one. Yeah, there's one, Veterinarians Without Borders. There is one, just like that. I, and I, I met them at an animal rights conference, yeah. and um, I told them, look, we, we'd love to have like a spay and neuter program. And they do that as a, uh, that's what they do, is they go around the country, around the world, to, to Africa, all over the place. And um, and they do these spay and neuter programs, and we made an appointment a, a week before they were going to come do this program in, in Palestine, mm -hmm. in, in Nablus. They said, um, "What what city are you exactly in?" I said, "It's uh, just outside of Nablus." They say, "Oh, we thought you were in Israel. You're you're in the West Bank. That's too dangerous." Wow. One week before, we were all ready for them to come. Wow. They canceled. It's yeah, too but dangerous. we should have told them maybe you were in a in a settlement. They would have come, right? <laughs> in a minute. Yeah, yeah. if you said. I mean, yeah. this is ridiculous. This is really sad. I mean, mm. that, uh, you know, something like this would happen. And this is actually very important because what you were saying, I mean, we know when you go somewhere uh, in Palestine, it's like a thousand cat, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I love cats, but you need to... Yeah, and they're, they're, right now their idea of uh, population control is they poison them and shoot them, and it's really disturbing. And, and they don't want to do that. They just they have this problem and they don't have the means to do what I think should be done, which is a spay and neuter program. Uh, so, you know, if we had the, we've tried several initiatives to, to, to do that, to spay and neuter rather than poison, 
but the funding's just not there. I mean, this is, it's easy to be judgmental and say, why, why are there roads have potholes? Why? They don't have resources, you know, so they're in survival mode. And this is something we've talked to many municipalities. They want to do a spay and neuter program, but we, we just don't have the money for it. How is your, your relationship with the villagers? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just like thinking you went, you picked a, one of the smallest village. I didn't know Asira. I mean, I actually know where Asira because it's near Taluza. <laughs> and then when we used to, when we were kids, mm-hmm. when someone wanted to talk about something very far, yeah. they'd say, oh, it's very far. It's near Taluza. <laughs> Which means, yeah, out of the middle <laughs> like of nowhere. In the, in the middle of nowhere. In the boonies. Exactly. Yeah. So we are in the boonies. So, yeah. so you, you know, basically came, um, people initially would look at you like you're a Palestinian American. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what I was up to. What the hell are you doing here? Why are you coming back here? And what? You're going to start a shelter for animals? Right. That's exactly right. They didn't know what to make of it. They thought this guy is just throwing money around, wasting his money. Uh, But, you know, it's changed. Every year it's gotten my um, relationship with the villagers and pretty much the whole West Bank has gotten better and better because they see we're not just talk. You know, we're not just saying we want you to do that or dictating to them we want you to do this or that is we're actually helping. We're changing the, the situation on the ground. Uh, and so when they see that, we're now getting calls from all over the West Bank saying, hey, we found a dog in the street. Can you help us? Mm, wow. uh, in, in Asira itself, we, we've employed a lot of people in Asira. So now it's not just this guy from, you know, Nablus or from the U.S. You know, it, it, it's somebody who's helping the community. Um, like all of, during the Olive Harvest, yes, we have volunteers from the U.S., uh, but I hope they don't think this is the wrong way. But, you know, they, they pick you know, a, a couple of buckets. <laughs> That's yeah. just, the stamina just isn't there. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, the olives are, are the, major, the vast majority of the olives are picked by the local residents. And they mean and something they, to I, them. And mean something, they do it every year. And they would have probably been offended if yeah. it was volunteers coming from the U.S. preventing them from being able to earn this little bit of money that they, they rely on every year. So we still do that. We still bring them in. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we're, we're being part of the community in so many ways now, it makes me feel great. I just wish the Israelis don't stop me on the border and prevent me from coming in. Well, uh, this is wonderful. I hope people will go to Daily Hugs website or your Facebook page and try to help this great project. You know, you can purchase some Palestinian olive oil or just make a donation. And, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure having you uh, here at any time when you come back with new stories. And again, just maybe I didn't give you justice in the introduction, aside from knowing you for 20 years, but people don't know that you are a, you have a master's in computer science, you have a law degree, mm-hmm. you ran for Congress. Now I'm picking up and uh, now, down behind donkeys. And now, <laughs> well, you know, this is your passion, saving, I, I saving the world. It's always been, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to uh, get for free all the recent, uh, our recent archives. Subscribe to our uh, archives right there. And also, you could watch us on Facebook Live. Talk to you next week.